we have to start to practice thinking of our audience when we're talking to them, following their lead, and just having certain topics that you filter out. There's inside thoughts and outside thoughts. And, you know, just really having certain topics you don't bring up. I also have people rehearse sort of alternate responses. Thomas Edison, Richard Branson, John F. Kennedy, Mozart, Michael Jordan, Will Smith. That sounds like a list of highly successful titans in a variety of vocations. Why is it that we rarely hear that they have or had ADHD? And you know what we hear even less about? Serena Williams, Emma Watson, Mel Robbins, Whoopi Goldberg, Agatha Christie, Aaron Brockovich, Cher. Yeah, the successful women navigating ADHD. And that's exactly why I started this podcast, ADHD for Smartass Women. I'm your host, Tracy Atsuka. I'm a lawyer, not a doctor, a lifelong student, now a coach. I'm also the creator of Your ADHD Brain is A-OK, a system that helps people like you figure out what they should do with their life. And we're here today to talk ADHD, your strengths, your symptoms, your workarounds, and how you proudly stand out instead of trying to fit in. I credit my ADHD for some of my greatest gifts. And you know what? I spy a happier life for you too. So without further ado, a shiny new episode is starting now. Hello, I am your host, Tracy Otsuka. Thank you so much for joining me here for episode number 152 of ADHD for Smartass Women. Please subscribe to this podcast and our newsletter over at tracyoutsuka.com. My purpose is always to show you who you are and then inspire you to be it. In the thousands of ADHD women that I have had the privilege of meeting, I have never met a one that wasn't truly brilliant at something. Not one. And of course, that includes my guest today. I met her several years ago when she came to teach one class one day in the ADD Coach Academy's basic program that I was participating in at the time. And I have no idea now what the class was, but she was so engaging and interesting that I thought I have to take whatever she's offering. And of course, the universe delivers, you know, like the universe often does, because right after that, I learned that she was leading the ADHD Coaching for Families program. I think she wrote it too, also at ADCA. And so I finally signed up last December. I started it last March, finished it in October, and it was truly amazing. So for all of these reasons, I am just delighted to introduce you to Caroline McGuire. Caroline is the founder of a revolutionary social-emotional learning methodology. I knew I would screw up on that word. Ah, Okay, I'm going to start all the way over. Caroline is the founder of a revolutionary social-emotional learning methodology that helps teach that word social skills to children, teenagers, and young adults. She holds a master's in education degree with a concentration in social and emotional learning training and is the founder and director of the Fundamentals of ADHD Coaching for Families Training Curriculum at ADD Coach Academy, the only coach training program accredited by the International Coach Federation. I just told someone that yesterday. She is a former coach for the Hollowell Center in Sudbury, Massachusetts. She is also the author of Why Will No One Play With Me, the winner of the Best Parenting and Family Book 2020, as awarded by American Book Fest and co-collaborator on newly released HowToSell.com, a daily social-emotional learning platform anyone can incorporate into daily life. Caroline is a sought-after lecturer and workshop facilitator on various topics related to social-emotional and behavioral learning. She is also a permanent columnist on social skills in Attitude Magazine and Chad's Attention Magazine. Oh my gosh, Caroline, did I get all that right? (laughs) You did. It makes me feel like I am uh, a busy lady, but it's all a part of my bigger mission. So thank you so much. So does it make you feel like you're accomplished? (laughs) You know what? 
You know what? I once read a study when I was in graduate school, and it said that um, women think the day is over when their task list is done, and men think the day is over when they're tired. And it was done by like Center for Disease Control or something. It was very, very objective. But I thought that was the greatest description because I don't feel like I'm even remotely done with my goals or accomplishments. I just feel like I'm moving forward every day and I'm like moving through the list, just like the study said. So what I feel is that there's just such a gap in our world and there's so many people who need the social emotional support and there's just not enough people out there who get it and who are bringing it to the real, you know, that are real. So I, you know, I never think about it as accomplishments. I think about it as like, I have to get out there and I have to do my thing. You have a purpose. I love it. So can we talk about your ADHD diagnosis first? Because in all this time, I don't think I heard it. <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. So I have kind of, a, you know, I'm a 46 years old. So I have a different journey than someone would have today. You know, someone like my daughter. Um, I was diagnosed when I was 12 with many learning disabilities as well as ADHD, but, but the hospital that diagnosed me, which is one of the most prominent in Boston, I won't say what, but it is the most prominent, um, said um, to my parents, don't worry about it. She's a girl. She'll grow out of it. So remediate her learning disabilities. This is way overdue, but don't worry about the ADHD. And so my parents went and dutifully did that. My parents really, I have to give them credit they sacrificed. I had tutors. I am dyslexic. I had never been diagnosed properly. I had all kinds of things going on. And they really like, they did not go to the Caribbean. They really made sure I got help. But they were also puzzled by me because my room was a mess. I was super ambitious yet. I couldn't get my work done. You know what I mean? Like they were. So <laughs> and I remember when um, Driven to Distraction came out, I was in college by then. Um, my mother actually went to see Ned Hollowell speak because she was wondering, you know, she was like, they say you grow out of it. They say she's a girl. She's definitely not inattentive. She seems more hyper. And people had told my mother, I mean, remember, this is the 80s, that girls could not be hyper. And my mother thought I was just like a carbon copy of my father, who is very undiagnosed and very hyper. So my mom was like always talking to me about it, Tracy. Like she would be like, what about medication? What about this? And I was always like, mom, like I didn't even remember I had it, Tracy. And then when I was 25, I was not a school person. I did well because I wanted choices, but I didn't like school. But I was always told I would like the work world because I was good at working, always. And when I got into the work world, I started out working for Johnson & Johnson, and I had this absolutely desirable job for any 22, 23-year-old. And I was not successful. And I was freaking out, Tracy, because all those ADHD symptoms were coming forward, right? I would run out of gas. I didn't have, you know, everything counted correctly. Um, I was a drug rep. I didn't have everything counted correctly. I would pass all my exams, but then in the moment, I wouldn't find the words. I couldn't remember the exact information. I was so disorganized, I can't even describe it to you. I didn't always enter my data in. Like, I, had so, I was a mess. And I really wanted to figure out why. And I would go to all these self-help seminars, and they just were not helpful. And I was freaking out. Caroline, at the time, did you remember the ADHD or was that like in the back of your mind at that point? No, it was not in the back of my mind, honestly. Because remember, this is the 90s now. There really just wasn't that, that penetration into everyone's daily life of what it could look like, mm. right? Yeah. I always thought it was my learning disabilities. Ah, like, so it was this school. is what's getting in the way. Yeah. And I went into a ballroom, Johnson & Johnson was launching a drug called Concerta. Wow. And I have to tell you, they do a great job. They educate you very well at these drug companies. And they, re I mean, they really spend time. And so they had all these experts talk to us for like days and days in this ballroom, 
educating the sales force about Concerta. And every person who got up, I was like, that's me. That's me. That's me. And at one point, I snuck up to my hotel room and I called my mother from a landline and I said, Mom, don't I have that ADHD thing? And she said, Yes, you do. And I really wish you would get help for it. And I was like, Well, they're describing me. And my mom said, Well, you know, I went and I saw Ned Hollowell and I've read his books. And, you know, she just was very chill about it because that's the way she is. So, I went to a psychiatrist. I explained everything. I had all my little children's hospital paperwork. And they they said, you know, yeah, you fit the bill. Like I described, you know, I run out of gas. I, I was married by then. I was 25. My, my husband was like so frustrated with me. And they said, you know, you fit every criteria here. Look at your life. And I was like, you know, no one has ever said this except when I was 12. And then I started getting help. And I started, I was very lucky, very lucky. I started seeing people for ADHD specific help. And I happened upon some good people. And that's really where it started, Tracy. I really didn't live as an ADHD person until I was 25. And then I lived it like I was ready to embrace the image. I was like, this is the problem. Like, this is what's going on. So what changed once you, you really got it? I mean, clearly, I guess you were diagnosed again then? Yeah, I really was. I mean, this, this psychiatrist like went through the checklist with me and was like, you know, check, check, check. And then I started seeing her. She was um, both a psychiatrist and a psychologist. And, and really what I learned later, kind of a force in her field, I didn't know, right? I just happened upon this woman. And I started seeing her and she did basically strategies with me. Um, and, you know, I would tell her things like, I can't get my work done. I wander the mall when I should be working and I am so bored. And she started explaining to me my brain. And I started taking medication, which I don't advocate for or against with my clients. People can do whatever they want, but I started taking it. And it changed my life instantly you know, the skill is not in the pill, but that did help. And then I was doing all this strategy work. And so by the time, you know, I was 28, 29, I really had a groove on, but it took a lot of hard work. I mean, I was all about making my weaknesses less and my strengths stronger during that five-year period because I wanted to be successful and I was not. So, how did that then lead to you going to grad school? So when I was um, in my late 20s, I was working all the time and I had a job in human resources and I used to go reform things. Like I would parachute into a different site for a big company and I would fix their staffing and I was a staffing manager for a company. And I was really good at it, but my husband and I would look at each other and say, how would you ever have kids with this job? You know, like, what would you ever do? And I started trying to think about, you know, do I go back to school and become a college counselor? Like, what could I do that uses my strengths, but is less travel-based, less demanding? And one night I was on a plane and I pulled out the New York Times, I think it was magazine. And it had an article about the ADD Coach Academy. No way. And the article talked about coaching. Well, my mom had brought me to all these tutors, but she always used to ask about my organization. She always used to ask about, you know, the interest factor, right? Like, my God, if she is interested, this kid can move heaven and earth. If she is not interested, she does not do it, you know? (laughs) And so um, I thought the minute I read that article, I thought this is what she was looking for. It's the practicality of coaching. So I carried the article around with me because I really wanted to go for the retraining and become an ADHD coach. But I was like, I don't have the money. I make too much money. I could never, you know, all that. And then one day I was laid off. And I was like the happiest laid off person in the world. And I called my mother and I said, you know, I was laid off and I'm relieved, but I don't know what I'm going to do. And my mother said, I know exactly what you're going to do. You're going to call that guy 
in that New York Times article, I literally carried it in my purse every day. And she was like, that's what you're meant to do. And my husband said the same thing. He came home and he said, oh my God, this is a gift. You hated your job at this point. So I did. I trained for however much, two years at the ADD Coach Academy. I started working then at Hollowell Center and coaching. And I very quickly realized that I wanted to write the book that we become why well known play with me. I wanted to write a guide for parents to understand social skills. And I knew I needed credentialization and I needed a graduate degree to be able to do that. That is amazing. So the book came first and then you were like, what do I need to make this book work? Yes, because, you know, here's how I am. I know that some people with ADHD have very limited future thinking. I am the opposite. I am, and there are definitely people like me out there. I am intense. I have too much future thinking. I think about things in the future with an urgency that is crushing. It is actually, you know, hard to be me. So <laughs> I, um, I saw this dilemma over and over again at the Hollowell Center where kids, adults, everyone were struggling with social. And this is, you know, this is 2004, 2005. People were not talking about it. People barely talk about it now. And I just kept thinking, you know, this is the biggest problem. Yes, it's everything else we know, but this is what's really making people miserable. And so I started trying to think, well, what, what could be done? And then I had this idea because I had started every night, I would sit there and I would read, you know, till all hours, every book I could get my hands on. I took every course I could take. I have a million little tiny certifications and things. And I really kept thinking like, people need user-friendly information. Everything is too academic. And, and so that's what led me to go to graduate school. I was like, I need these credentials so I can make sure to get this information out there. Well, and what I, we were talking about right before we got on here that I have believed from the minute I took the uh, the family training program through ADCA and, of course, read your book is that everything that you talk about, yes, it is for children, but I just got a kick out of the fact that it could be applied to adults. I mean, even the, because I think with our ADHD brains, you know, we need things to be fun, right? To be engaging. And so I'm thinking about, you know, your sticky brain thing with the mannequin, yes. where, you know, it's all about, um, you know, rumination, basically. And so, well, you tell it. You tell what you do. Okay. So I'm really creative. That's like my superpower. And I was sort of a strange kid. Like, I'm fully going to out myself. I was like a little bit odd. I'm super creative. And I was always kind of off in my own little world. And so one of the things I do is I like to invent things. And in coaching, we have this thing called witnessing, where we're trying to help people see for themselves. So when I work with kids, teenagers, adults, anyone, I don't want to tell them, you know, rumination is the crippling thing in your life. I want them to figure it out for themselves and see it. And one of the things I discovered early on is that any kind of visual or interactive experience helps people more. And of course, we know this from research, but like I discovered this kind of accident. And so I have this foam head <laughs> and I put Velcro on it and I have a list of laminated things that stick in your brain. And this is in why well known play with me, but it's in like, you know, beautiful artistic rendition. But what I do is I ask kids or teenagers or adults, like, what is it like for you when things get stuck? And I show them this list of stuff that can get stuck. And we walk through and we talk about rumination, when things get stuck, how painful it is. And we look at like, what gets stuck in your head? And like, what's the, what's the effect of it? But we use this foam head. And I got to tell you, I've even had grown, you know, 60 yep. year olds sticking stuff to the brain. Totally. And what I think is fun about it is that it also it's something they all refer to. Like I had a teenage boy the other day who was like, remember when we talked about sticky brain? Well, like that's what's going on with me today. And he was, you know, he was not the kid you would have thought would have been like sticking things on a plastic brain. Um, 
And, you know, when I work virtually, I have them stick it on a picture. You know, I have all kinds of things now, but it, it literally started because I wanted to, I'm a ruminator myself and I wanted to represent just that horrendous thing we experience where you can't move away from whatever's stuck in your brain. And so I do a lot of that stuff. And I agree with you. I think it's very applicable to any age group because it's all the same dilemma. It's just, you know, whether or not you're five and you can't articulate it or you're 60 and you know darn well what's going on. Yeah, no, just the way all of these exercises, the way you do them, you remember it, it can apply to adults. And because it's fun, they pay attention and they get it, you know, versus this dry reading. So yeah, I'm a huge fan. So anyway, I have been part of your ADD Coach Academy Families Training Program for like eight months. And a big part of it was, as you know, all around learning about social skills. And the whole time I've been in class, I literally thought, well, I'm learning this because I'm interested in the subject, but it doesn't really apply to me because I identify as having so much social and emotional intelligence. But then last week when Grace sent me your form where I always ask, what do you like to talk about? I asked that of all my guests and I looked at it and I saw what you like to talk about and I literally laughed. So this is what you said. TMI for adults with ADHD, why adults with ADHD tend to overshare, want to make friends, learn how to make small talk. And then number three was why adults with ADHD hate to chit chat and how to get over it. And I literally, I read that and I was like, oh crap, Tracy, you are delusional. All three of those topics apply to you. And I think that, you know, many of us with ADHD, myself included, we feel very comfortable leading, but we really struggle to follow or be one of a group because we kind of have to go along with what the group wants, right? Yep. Yeah, a hundred percent. And in a group, you kind of, you have to small talk, you know, it's much harder to have a real meaningful, intense conversation in a group. Yeah. I know for myself personally, I'm always a little envious of friends who have these like lifelong friendships with the big group of women and every year they meet for a long weekend in a fun city, but it's the thought of it that I romanticize. I don't really want to do it because (laughs) I have to do what everyone else wants to do, right? Which is a struggle because I'm not a spa, let's go shopping, let's small talk kind of person. And So when I'm invited to these kinds of things, I tend to fly in at the ninth hour. I always miss the spa. I miss the shopping. And I come in right before dinner because I figure, well, I can sit next to people where at least I can have kind of what I consider to be more important one-on-one kind of conversations. So the things that you like to talk about, I feel like they're all kind of connected, you know, when it comes to adults. So if we start with number one, which is TMI for adults, too much information for adults with ADHD. So why do adults with ADHD tend to overshare? Can we start with what is oversharing? Yes. May I comment on what you said? Yes, too? comment. Oh my God. So um, I, I'm laughing and I love what you shared. And, and here's what I want to say. Some of this is because of, a, of boredom and the fact that we get agitated boredom and it's a self-reg situation. So, you know, sometimes we're accused as ADHD folks of being a little more narcissistic. Oh, I want it my way or the highway. Um, and of course there are people like that, but I don't think that that's everyone. I think what happens is the intensity of our emotions, the intensity of that agitated boredom, the intensity of feeling like I am going to jump out of my skin, that my cognitive hyperactivity is going crazy. And for me, I'll just out myself, my husband, I have to let him listen to this. He'll be like, oh my God. Um, I literally, if I'm bored or I'm not interested, okay? And I work on this every day, right? I literally not only feel like I'm going to jump out of my skin, like my to-do list is in my head. I'm like, I'm at this boring thing. And like, I I have laundry to do. Like I have stuff to do. I could be doing that. And so I think when, you know, you're talking about this for adults, 
you, it's not that you don't have emotional intelligence, because I know you, you do. But I, I think there's folks within the ADHD realm, and this is studied and proven, who really don't know what to do, and they really do struggle with, you know, really the, the things that do come down to emotional intelligence. And I think that's under-discussed. But I also think there's a group of people who we kind of know what we're supposed to do, but we don't have the ability to produce those results because it is just such a self-reg issue. It is so hard for us. And the boredom is a real thing. Um, and then also, I think, mindset, right? Like, I fully admit to you that if you met me in my 20s, even when I became more successful in the workplace, I didn't want to go to someone's lunch for being there for 50 years. I didn't want to go to um, make chit chat. And actually a coworker said to me, I love chit chat. And I remember looking at her and thinking, what? And she was a great lady. I loved her. She was, you know, who I want to be when I grow up. And I said, how can you possibly like chit chat? And she said, I just asked people questions. And she was like, you are the most curious, you know, chatty person ever. And I said, I'm chatty when I'm interested. I'm not chatty when I feel like it's a duty. And yeah. she looked at me and she said, it's not a duty. <laughs> and so <laughs> like, it was this big disconnect. So I have really become better at chit chat, but I want to honor what you said and just tell you, this is a real struggle for many of us. I want people to be open to changing it because it can open so many doors for us. But I want to just sort of take the two minutes to say, like, there's neurobiological reasons why we are feeling this way. And, and so, I mean, just everyone at home, like, we can move out of it, but just know why it's there. Okay. So let's talk about too much information. Okay. And this whole problem that we often have of oversharing. Mm. Sure. Absolutely. Did, wait, did uh. you tell me what oversharing is? So oversharing is when we, we share information about, you know, bodily functions, marriages, finances, um, everything that happened to us that day. And we share more vulnerable information, right? And when our audience is not necessarily in line with that level of intimacy. So I have um, my website information that's, that's out there about too much information. And one of the things I start with is sort of these levels of intimacy, because we're not oversharing if we're with our best friend, but we're oversharing because we're coming at someone and we're sort of talking at them about highly vulnerable private information or everything that happened to us that day. And it's not in line with, with the level of, of conversation, right? So it's light chit chat and I come in with, you know, my bodily functions or it's, um, it's just, it's very vulnerable information with someone who is an acquaintance or a stranger. Um, and so it's, it's something everyone in society talks about is, is, is oversharing, but it's just, you know, rampant in our, our world. So why do we do this? So there's a couple different reasons. One of them is that we don't really understand whether it's because our family members were ADHD and they didn't understand and didn't teach us and we didn't have good social models or because we just don't by nature understand um, levels of intimacy and boundaries, right? So many people with ADHD um, lack the ability to kind of understand different levels of intimacy, understand who you share with and who you don't, understand that intimacy builds over time. The other thing is we want to be your close friend. Because we don't like chit-chat, we prefer these really intimate bonds where it's a real conversation. It's a deep conversation. And so we tend to overshare because we have this glimmer of, you know, we think the door is open for us. We think that there's, there's possibilities there, or we just don't do this more superficial level. And we kind of ramrod in. The problem is the poor recipient of this 
is like, oh my God. And then we lose the possibility of, of intimacy with them. And the third reason is it's a self-reg issue. Many people tell me, and it's borne out in research, that they, even as they are oversharing, they are sort of entering the wormhole and they are thinking, oh my gosh, be quiet. <laughs> totally. But they, but, they, <laughs> but they can't do it. And so there's a self-reg aspect to this. And so when I work with clients, one of the things I work on is what's your emotional state when you tend to overshare? You know, what's your self-reg state? What's your state of sleep and food and everything? Because a, a lot of it does track back to if I'm you know, if it's the end of the day and I'm super tired, you know, and I really have very limited self-regulation left, I am going to be more likely to overshare. That makes so much sense. I mean, and it kind of connects to what I was saying that, you know, I, I like intense, important conversations. <laughs> so it would stand to reason that that's where we're trying to go with this. We're just trying to jack the conversation up to another level, right? But maybe inappropriately. Yeah. And, and I think, it, so I think it's that, right? And when we feel that connection with someone, what we have to start to remember is who is your audience, right? Because if our audience is a neurotypical person, then their playbook is that you share slowly over time. You reciprocate. So if they share something of a certain level, we would share back at that level. So it's almost like, you know, a game of, of Jenga. I'm putting that, you know, every time you up your level of intimacy, I up mine too, that there's reciprocity and that it happens over a long span of time. Now, I can feel every ADHD person in the audience cringing and groaning at this. Here's the thing though, that's what they're expecting. So when we come back with, you know, all these statements about our mother-in-law and our finances and like, here's my bank account number, they, they're like, they're like cringing, you know, that's, that's, that's the thing. So my sales pitch is to work on this, not to feel bad about it, because we have such capacity for empathy and warmth and all these wonderful things. but we want to make those connections with people. We don't want them cringing. And then we get like this self-reg hangover where we feel so bad about ourselves. Okay. So now we know why we overshare. What can we do to stop oversharing? Okay. So the first thing we need to do is think about what and when do we overshare and sort of take our vitals and realize, you know, what are the, our emotional states? Are there any self-reg triggers that tend to promote it? Like you're tired or certain people or, you know, your emotional state. The, the next thing I really try to have people work on is to realize and think about the level of intimacy and your audience, right? So when you're speaking to someone, to practice thinking about and being more present to who am I speaking to and what's my level of intimacy with this person? And based on my level of intimacy, you know, what are the topics I can share and what are the topics I don't want to share? And I have a whole roadmap for this that's coming onto my new website, carolinemaguireauthor.com. And the way that you, that you practice it is just by getting out there. And so it's very scary. We can't beat us, ourselves up. Every day is a different day and a new day. But we have to start to practice thinking of our audience when we're talking to them, following their lead, and just having certain topics that you filter out. With little kids, they call them inside thoughts, right? So <laughs> there's inside thoughts and outside thoughts. And, you know, just really having certain topics you don't bring up. I also have people rehearse sort of alternate responses, right? So if whenever you describe your mother-in-law, you go into a whole long thing about how horrendous she is, like, what else could you say? Oh, she's a difficult person. You know, so like you come up with little phrases that you start to use to replace the very long, verbose, vulnerable information 
And this is a process that you have to work on over time, right? And sort of know this is what I'm working on. I'm working on not sharing. I'm working on, and then we work on your self-reg state because we tend to, our levels of arousal, our levels of activation go up as we are losing our self-regulation. And that's when we tend to start to really go down the rabbit hole of oversharing. So we have to work on that too. Wait, explain that again. Go go into a little bit more depth on what you just said. Okay, so um, what I have found is that if we think about self-regulation, self-regulation is about your levels of activation in the brain and your levels of energy and arousal going up. And so you're going from a sort of a state of calm or homeostasis where your levels of activation increase and increase and increase and increase. There's no... Um, you know, people talk about impulsivity and people talk about loss of self-regulation like it happens in a split second. It really doesn't. In the body, it happens over time and there's actual physical signals, I call them tells, that you are starting to have that reaction and your self-regulation is, you know, your arousal levels are going up, your activation's going up. So you are actually physiologically changing. So we know that when someone is having um, a meltdown or someone is having a real self-reg incident where they're losing control, their blood pressure goes up, you know, their actual physical chemistry changes. So if we can start to recognize what happens to me in my body, and this might be something you work on for a while, paying attention to what happens when I tend to be getting too excited, getting too into a conversation, and I'm crossing over into oversharing. Because that's something that really happens a lot to us. What is it that happens in my body? I know for me, I get very flushed, my chest gets all red. And when I feel that happening, I know, like in my brain, my mind's eye, I can hear a little voice in my head go, you're being too much. And so over time, some people, it's their stomach, you know, it's Mm. whatever you might identify. So you have to pay attention to these body signals and, and not judge yourself and not be too hard on yourself because this is diagnostic. We need this information. So like, it's all good. Right. And now whenever I feel that I know I'm going down the wormhole or Maybe it's certain topics. You get so excited. You get so into it that like you just start talking at the person. But I think that self-reg aspect is something we really have to pay attention to. So this sounds a lot like mindfulness. It is. It's just that we hate the word mindfulness. (laughs) Um, I also think mindfulness is often not presented as something that would be palatable, Mm. right? It's presented as something that would be work. I, so I, I feel like it is mindfulness, but it's really just presence, right? It's ah. being present and focused enough in the moment where this is your mission, right? So whenever you enter a door, whenever you enter a conversation to work on, maybe the first step is just being present and realizing I'm in this conversation and it's happening. And then you can enact trying to be more conscious of what you're saying and doing. But usually what happens is we have to work on you actually even being present that like, oh, I'm having this conversation because we just kind of bulldoze forward. And so it sounds also like in advance of all this, you've already thought this through and kind of created a plan. Yes, absolutely. So when somebody comes to me and they want to work on this topic, or I've had, you know, entire seminars, entire groups where this is what we work on. um, First, I want to say it takes a lot of time. Okay. So when people hold themselves to a standard where they think they've worked on it like twice and then they beat themselves up, please don't do that. Right. I think I've been working on this since I was 25 years old and I fail at it a lot. Right. So it's really something that like when they come to me, we make this plan. I explain in depth all the things I've been explaining to you. And we sort of go through and look at, you know, what are the topics? What are the situations? What are the, the ways that you phrase things? What are the things that make people cringe? And 
we have to kind of come up with that and then come up with what are the alternatives of what you can say. So I'll just give you a pandemic-based example. Um, what I noticed in the pandemic was even neurotypicals were going into things like way too much about, you know, their, their political feelings, their feelings about the pandemic, their feelings about masks, their feelings about whatever. And so I have pinned to my pegboard, it's a very challenging time for everyone because I started with my clients. My clients were like, I'm working on this and people are saying this stuff to me and I don't know what to do. So, you know, we, we started coming up with, even for kids, right? Kids are like, I'm trying not to do too much information. And these other people are like, you know, accosting me at the pharmacy about, you know, masks. And so, you know, we started coming up with phrases, like something you can say that is not too much, doesn't go down that rabbit hole. Because one of my, one of my adult clients said this to me, he was like, I'm trying so hard, but these people are going down the rabbit hole. So I go down with them. <laughs> yeah, totally. You know? <laughs> totally. Oh my God. And politics, especially like right before Thanksgiving, I'm thinking of this, right? Oh, yes. Yes. Uh, it never ends. Well, why do we keep going there? Right. Well, and that's, so that's part of this. So I'll say this and people can say, I would never do this. And this is just what I do. I personally do not discuss politics outside my very, very intimate friends. Yeah. And the reason is I have no self-control. I <laughs> cannot have a reasoned discussion. I try, but when the other people are shouting me down or whatever, I lose it. And what's happened is I've gone from being the person who's like McNeil Lair yelling at everybody else to now I just sort of sit there and it takes a lot of self-reg sometimes. But here's the thing. When I leave that party, I don't feel bad about myself. And that's my goal. That's me personally. I'm not asking anyone to do it, but that would be my thing. When you enter Thanksgiving, when you enter the holidays, when you're at a big gathering, when you're at a small gathering, what do you want your impression to be and how do you want to feel at the end of it? And if you're working on too much information or you're working on your self-regulation, maybe that's more important for your self, you know, appreciation and how you feel about yourself than engaging in some discussion that, by the way, who has ever changed anyone else's opinion, right? Like I was in a discussion Tuesday night with a bunch of wonderful people where they're arguing about whether we should build a middle school in my town. Nobody left that conversation having changed their opinion. Like everybody went in with an opinion and left with the same opinion. So all I would have done is made myself upset with my, I would have left and said, oh, what are you doing, Caroline? You know, I'm not saying everybody has to follow this lead. I'm saying if you, if you know that you want to have a good discussion with your family and that it does not end well, then have some little platitudes you say and work on your self-regulation because they can do whatever they want. I want me and my clients to feel good. That is so brilliant. So what you're doing is you are looking at the end, which we don't always do so well. And it, it, what's your intention, right? When you walk out of that party that you're going to feel good because you're absolutely right. We get into these arguments and we don't change anybody's minds and we, we feel like crap. Like, why did I bring that up again? Like, I knew that. I knew that it was just going to end badly. Right. I love that. I love that. Right. But it takes a bit, right, to pause and remind yourself, wait, I'm not even going to go there. Ah, yeah. Well, and to use something for mindfulness, one of the things they do in social skills the world over is have anchors. And so we teach people to look at a doorway, uh, um, you know, when you're physically standing in front of someone and you're having a conversation, when you're on Zoom and you enter into a conversation, when you sort of realize you're into a certain situation, there's an anchor. And that anchor is, you know, oh my gosh, this is actually happening. Like I've entered this doorway and now I'm on. And so one of my pieces of advice around all this is, notice your anchors, right? I'm not asking you to, this is hard work and I can feel everyone at home going, oh my God, Caroline, this is so much work. What's your intention? What do you want to feel like? You know, where do you want to be? And then what are the anchors? 
maybe you don't care with your family because you come from one of these big, wonderful families where people love you no matter what. Don't have the same experience, but I hear it's nice. Like, and maybe it's whenever you enter an event at your church or your town or, you, you know, professionally, whatever it is, it's like, what's your anchor? Is it every doorway you enter? Is it every Zoom room where you're kind of like, okay, I'm going to be more present and I'm going to work on this. And this is my mission. My mission is being more present, paying attention to myself, reg signals, whatever it is, one of those things, because you have to build, <laughs> you're not going to get them all at once. Wow. No, I think that's really, really amazing. And as we're sitting here talking, <laughs> I realized that, um, yeah, my parents called me the Burlingame blab when I was a kid and we lived in a town called Burlingame. <laughs> they, they always said they could never tell any family secrets. And I think the, the straw that broke the camel's back was when they heard me talking to a friend probably gossiping to a friend about how my mom is so mad at my dad because she didn't like the jeans that he bought and blah, blah, blah. And they were just like, why do you need to tell, you know, everybody else about these like silly little things that don't mean anything? Um, <laughs> so we know now why we overshare. We know how to stop oversharing. We also know why we don't like small talk. We don't like to chit chat. Can you give us some pointers on if we know we don't like to chit chat, what are the things that we can do to kind of learn how to do that at least a little bit? Well, I always say, and part of it was I was a theater kid. So I'm always sort of like, I'm taking on a role, right? And if you can do that, that's great. But um, remember the purpose of chit chat and small talk and think of being curious. People love to talk about themselves, right? So rather than thinking of chit chat as this purposeless thing that has, you know, you're forced to do like an indenture, you know, you're captured and you're in the tower. <laughs> um, think of it as having a purpose. You're trying to explore information about people. You're trying to find out more about them. You're genuinely curious, right? You're at the post office and someone says, like someone, this happened to me the other day, someone said that there was um, a fire in their kitchen and you're like being empathetic, which we're really good at, you know, like, oh my gosh, that's terrible. Like what happened, you know? And you're trying to make a connection with someone. You're trying to make an impression on them and you're trying to just, connect with them. And, you know, we always talk about, you know, left out kids who are, as you know, my bailiwick, and, you know, all the things we wish as a society to be empathetic and kind. If you don't engage in chit chat with someone, they're going to think you're rude. And that doesn't show your best self and the people that I know we are, right? They're expecting us to chat and connect and, you know, show interest. So, Rather than thinking to get better at it, to me, we have to shift our mindset to remember the purpose and to kind of, you know, every person I know at, at you know, the International Conference on ADHD that I run into is super interesting, right? Okay, so if you chat with people, you're finding out about them, be curious. You're all curious people. <laughs> right? You're all reading and doing all these things. And we're just trying to sort of have this conversation. And we have the ability, even if you get nothing out of it, you made that other person feel good. It's like a smile, right? When, when I have kids that are left out and are struggling at school and my clients, I really hope that today people smile at them, that they're kind to them, that they maybe show them some charity. Well, if, I'm in the post office and I smile at someone and I talk to them for 30 seconds, I'm giving them that little dose of that. So I think the way we get better is we practice, but we also just shift that mindset. It's not meant to be the torture that we feel it is. <laughs> you know, what's interesting is um, I am 
Well, I think this is because of my husband, because, you know, I don't think this came from my family, but I am very friendly outwardly. You know, the, hi, how are you doing? You know, if someone's looking down, I'm, I'm engaging with them, but it's the, the mindless stuff that comes. Actually, that's not even true because I can be in a line and I can start talking to someone and there's something interesting about them that you're able to pull out, right? And then you want to know more and then you're their best friend. But it's it's the other kind of conversation with people I think that I know, that I know all this crap already, but we're still expected to like, you know, you show up at a cocktail party and you're supposed to chit chat with them about the weather and about, <laughs> I mean, I've got, you know, the weather on my damn phone. I can look it up. That <laughs> stuff. Like, I don't get it. Okay. But like, let me just say this too. In your mind, think about people as having different purposes, right? So you know, my mother said this to me and it actually bears out in research, but she said it to me when I was a little girl, because I wanted everyone to be my best friend. And my mom's an introvert and she's a neurotypical. And so I'm sure I was always like this big mystery to her. And she said to me, you only get two or three people in your entire life who are what you're expecting, basically, like you're expecting everyone to be this level of intimacy and you get two or three of those in a lifetime. And so one of the things I have in Why Will No One Play With Me is something called Flavors of Friendship. And it talks about friends. And one of the things that's helped my clients and helped me a lot is to think of all these people as, you know, different types of friendship. So the people with the weather and you know all this stuff already, it's like they're acquaintances. So instead of being mad at them for not being friends, to think of them as their acquaintances, this is only going to do so far. And to try to remember in those moments too, I have those intimate people, right? So another thing I do with clients, you know, especially business people, is we try to figure out a balance. Because I know I'll just speak from personal experience, but I can think of like a dozen people this year alone that I've coached where you know, I had, a, I had a client who's head of a board of trustees and he loves the work he does. But he was like, I go to all these super superficial things with like you, where he's like, I could look up the weather on my phone. So we try to balance. So maybe he's going to a game with his best friend on Saturday night to compensate for the fact that he went to a fundraiser on Friday night and had to make chit chat. And that, and that, you know, Sunday, he's going to be with his, you know, immediate family where it's rich and deep. Because I think that's part of it, Tracy. If it's like too much of the superficial, then we lose it. The other thing I want to say, and I'm laughing because I've thought the same thoughts that you said. And I think like part of it is I wrote the word interest. You're not interested. You have the weather on your phone. And so part of this is us struggling with interest where you go into some place and you're like, oh, I'm not interested in this. I mean, am I right about that, Tracy? Absolutely. I mean, there's just so much other stuff to talk about that is, is interesting, right? It's a waste of my time, which is awful. But what about trying to bridge from the weather to those people's interests, right? So what if I'm just making this up, yeah. but like, you know, what if one of them was making a documentary about something super cool? We ne we're in the weather, but we want to, we, we don't want to jump to, you know, their grandmother and, you know, their bank account and all that TMI stuff. But, but, you know, what if, you know, we learn to bridge and use bridging questions and use things to sort of to say, like, it is beautiful weather. What have you been up to lately? I never heard. What do you do? You said you traveled and that's how you know it's nice in France. Like, tell me about that. So now I'm totally socially appropriate. I'm learning about the person and I'm, I might pick out, like you said, those kernels of interest. But I'm not talking about body fluids, my bank account, you know, the fight I had with my husband, um, the fact that I haven't paid off my car, the way we sometimes do. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm pretty good, finally, <laughs> on the oversharing. If anything, I might be more private than I should be. But then every once in a while, you know, you're just like, oh, my gosh, why did I just say that? That, you know, it, it doesn't even apply, you know, and I was thinking about 
the whole oversharing thing, going back to that. Do you think that we gossip more as ADHD people because we want that connection? Or do you think that's not true at all? What we tend to do is the opposite. We tend to just blurt it out to everyone in the room more. <laughs> so it's funny. I wrote my college thesis about gossip as a means of communication between people. So I'm like super interested in this. But, wow. Um, uh, yeah, it wasn't that it was my end product was not as good as my idea because back then I didn't have any of my ADHD tools. Right. Um, but I think we do tend to just blurt it out to everyone. Right. So I don't know if we gossip more or less. I think we're interesting, right? I think we're super interesting, but I think what tends to happen is we blurt things out to everyone. We say things we should have filtered and then we don't get the chance, right? Because of impressions. So I'll just give you an example. I have had clients who were so erudite, spoke five, six, seven languages, but because they make a bad impression, they don't necessarily get the opportunity to go to, you know, the big Russian, you know, exhibit at the Met where they would actually enlighten people and be like the guest of the year. But they don't get to go because at the post office, at the bookstore, at the whatever, they've said something about body fluids. And so the person who might invite them is like, oh, no, stay away. Right. And so what we're trying to do with them is try to help them with this too much information piece so that they get that chance to connect and they don't sort of, you know, blurt it all out. And then the person feels like they're hit with a force field of just inappropriate information that they're like not sure what to do with it. Totally. And then it haunts them for the rest of their life. Yeah. When I was yeah. in eighth grade, I can't yeah. even remember where it was. It was some, you know, we I was at a Catholic school and it was some weekend retreat, I think in Carmel. And I remember we were all sitting there, a whole group of girls, and everybody was saying like, which was the boy that they liked? And I remember this one poor girl said, oh, it's, it's Mike. I'm not going to say his real name. It's Mike, because he turned out to be a jerk. It's Mike. And I remember literally, I don't even know where it came from. I'm like, well, he doesn't like you. So you might as well pick someone else. And I remember all the girls were like, <gasps> and, and the thing is, it, what I said was true, right? But why would I say that? And to this day, I still feel like I should really call her up and apologize. I should really call her. <laughs> you know, it's been decades, but I still remember that. Well, and the thing is that, I mean, what you're describing is, also one of the mindset issues, right? I doubt the woman even remembers, by the way. <laughs> I but, hope not. But one of the things I hear from ADHD people, and by the way, after I gave my keynote at the international conference, I'm working through them, people. I'm going to respond to everyone. I've had hundreds of emails. And a lot of people wrote me to ask me to shift my position to basically that the rest of the world should just like learn to deal. And so here's my thing. I am totally about people being them, their individual self, but I want people to think about that wall of information or how that person feels when you say something like that. And I've said a million things like that too. So it's, it's not about you know, I want, I want self-acceptance to be part of your life. I absolutely want my clients and everybody to feel good about themselves, but it's that it's very unexpected to other people and that we're hitting them like over the head with information. And so that's one reason I'm very into videos lately, because what I do and what I've always done is to show my clients like what is monologuing look like and what does the other person look like while they're experiencing? And so I've been making all these videos that are coming out where I'm interviewing real people and I'm asking them to monologue for me or to show TMI. And then I'm showing the other person's reaction, not to make anyone feel bad, but because I want people to understand this is, this is about perspective and empathy and that the other people, when we tell them our checking account number at the post office, they're like, they're like 
they're like barraged, they're, they're besieged. And that's why I want us to learn how to, to regulate this. I don't want you to become a different person. I want you to have choices and be able to demonstrate your greatness so that you get that promotion, so you can do the amazing creative work that only you and I can do. I completely agree with you. I mean, and yeah, I'm totally all about, oh my gosh, be yourself. But, and I'm going back to that story again, but I'm sure they all got together and it was like, oh my God, she's such a bitch. (laughs) They probably still think that, right? So that stopped my ability to, who knows, you know, what relationships I could have had there um, because I was blurting rather than, you know, pausing and really thinking, does this serve anyone? And then beyond that, it just wasn't kind. It just was not kind. So, oh my God, you're amazing. So I want to know, what is it about you and your ADHD that makes you so good at what you do? Because clearly you're so good at what you do. Well, remember, I've fully been disclosing, I am weak in other areas. So, um, (laughs) I think honestly that, um, I am creative and I have a lot of energy and, I think that I look at things differently and that's the ADHD traits. I think that there's this plucky side of me um, and part of it does go back to my learning disabilities where I had to overcome a lot where I, when people, you know, lots of times, even now people tell me something cannot be done and I'm always like, I'll show you, you know, and Sometimes it doesn't always serve me because I can feel my husband being like, (laughs) drive us crazy. (laughs) But I think that it really is a very ADHD characteristic where I'm like, let me see what I can do creatively to figure this out in a way that no one else can. And, you know, I think it's just hysterical now when people praise me for it because 15 years ago, people were like, it can't be done. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they were like, why are you spending your time um, to make, you know, a guide for parents that's not academic? It can't be done. You know, why are you trying to coach kids virtually on social skills? If they won't join a group, there's just no hope for them. And I was like, (laughs) you know what? Most of my clients will not join a social skills group. They would rather die. If we could find a group for them, I'd be great on that. But I can't get them to a group. So I have to find a way to teach them and simulate and teach them the things that they would learn in the thought that it can't be done. So we're going to let millions of kids just be miserable? Uh Uh-uh. Oh. So are you working on something you want to tell us about? Sure. Um, so I just launched a new website, carolinemaguireauthor.com, and I'm bringing out a series of videos that I think people will like. One is about joining a group, and it's literally me showing people physically navigating into a group and how you do it, um, because that's something that's really come up a lot over the years. It's like, how do you like join a group of people physically? People get very intimidated. And then I'm also coming out with, you know, videos about how to build a conversation. I have all this new, new material out there. So I would love people to use it because I think a picture's worth a thousand words, right? Yeah. Especially for our brains. Mm-hmm. Um, don't you have something else coming out on December 7th? So December 7th, I am starting a group. Thank you for reminding me. <laughs> um, a group for adults. Um, It's called a seminar because I'm going to teach people how to um, build, how to be, uh, tell a tight story. Uh, I can't speak. Um, How to tell a tight story and how to work on their self-regulation. And I'm going to teach them and then we're going to practice as a group. And so it's a two-night seminar on the 7th and the 14th. And I'm taking signups now at carolinemaguireauthor.com. It's for adults with ADHD. And it's filling up, but I'm excited because I've been wanting to do this. I've been wanting to do more groups, more things for the adult community because people write me and say, when are you going to do this? So I'm doing it. (laughs) Absolutely. Okay. So I have to tell you that when you introduce telling a tight story, 
in our ADCA training. I remember you said, so a tight story has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And I was just like, what? A story has a beginning, a middle, and an end? <laughs> I thought it starts here, moves over there, goes over to the right, the left, you know, yeah. I, I love that. Okay. So before you go, Caroline, do you want to leave us with any parting words? I want to say that, you know, we do have to remember our strengths and our superpowers. And all of this work can make you feel really vulnerable and really badly about yourself. But part of that is this perception we have that we're the only people who have to work on stuff. And that's just not true. There are thousands of business books written and, and millions of people buy them because people are working on communication skills. So we may have, you know, TMI and other things, but everyone is working on something. They just don't talk about it. So I don't want people to feel badly or feel like this is insurmountable. It is absolutely something that we can improve on and it absolutely will improve your choices and your social connection and give you all the things you deserve. Why will no one play with me? Available everywhere? Everywhere. Go get it. It's fabulous. You're fabulous. Thank you so much for spending time with us. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. And I'm sure our listeners do too. Thank you for having me. It was so much fun. So that's what I have for you for this week. If you like this episode with Caroline, please let us know by leaving a review. Our goal is to change the conversation around ADHD, helping as many women as we possibly can learn how their ADHD brains work so that they too may discover their amazing strengths. And you know what? Your reviews really help in that regard. As always, you're listening to ADHD for Smartass Women. Come join me over at tracyoutsuka.com. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you here next week. You've been listening to the ADHD for Smartass Women podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Outsuka, and we're available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Not coincidentally, ADHD for Smartass Women, it's also the name of our free Facebook group. We're a totally smartass community of successful, ambitious women who share our ADHD wins, questions, and workarounds. Join us at tracyoutsuka.com where you can also find more information on our Your ADHD Brain is A-OK system. I spy a happier life for us, and I'll see you again next week.